St. Francis of Assisi once said, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you're doing the impossible. Welcome to the 56th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because we need to realize that it's in the simple things we do that we can have the most impact on those around us. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, whenever a story comes out about maternal mental health, I want to make sure to highlight it, primarily because the availability of mental health services for new mothers in our world is severely lacking, and even the awareness of maternal mental health needs among maternal and mental health professionals are dim in most cases. It's with that in mind that we look into this story from the BBC in Scotland, quote, about one in five new mothers have a mental health condition. These can include depression, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and psychiatry psychotic disorder. Speaking to BBC Scotland, the Royal College of Psychiatrists called for better community treatment and said huge areas still do not have perinatal mental health services, despite years of campaigning. Scotland only has two mother and baby mental health units, and this means new mothers with mental health problems are facing a zip code lottery, often having to travel hundreds of miles for treatment. Anyone listening who's experienced uh, maternal mental health symptoms and has tried to reach out for help for those symptoms probably knows that this is not just an issue in Scotland, but here in the States too. There is simply far too little in terms of knowledge and in terms of services for those going through maternal mental health experiences. From a lack of screening and recognition of postpartum depression to an almost complete lack of knowledge and even uh, understanding of the existence of postpartum psychosis to the fact that uh, nearly no inpatient mental health units have the ability for a newborn baby to be with a mother while she's receiving care. We are facing a situation that we have to speak up about and take action over. The development of adequate screening and services to meet this need is literally a matter of life and death. So let's continue to talk about it and find ways in our own local communities that we can work to improve the system. If you're interested, check out maternalmentalhealthnow.com to learn more. On to the next topic, an Oakland, California group has launched a non-police mental health hotline, and I wanted to share this story because this is so important and so necessary. People may not know this, but when a loved one is experiencing a mental health crisis, many family members call 911. And to be clear, this is something that we should do in cases where uh, you know a mental health crisis comes up, when a, when a loved one is suicidal or homicidal or perhaps psychotic to the point of being unsafe. Um, the problem is, is that this 911 call can also lead to a life and death situation in a different way. So we have to recognize that there's a danger in calling 911 as well. People with untreated mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed during a police encounter than other civilians approached or stopped by law enforcement, according to a new study released by the Treatment Advocacy Center. Numbering fewer than 1 in 50 U.S. adults, individuals with untreated severe mental illness are involved in at least one in four and as many as half of all fatal police shootings. 
So back to the movement in Oakland. This is from 48hills.org. The anti-police uh, terror project launched Mental Health First Oakland, a hotline staffed by 12 volunteers with backgrounds in social work, peer counseling, and medicine, including peer counselors, family therapists, and two soon-to-be nurse practitioners to address calls related to mental health crises, homelessness, domestic violence, and substance abuse. The hotline is meant as an alternative to 911 calls in response to mental health emergencies and to offer long-term help that is more sensitive to the needs of those receiving help than responses from law enforcement who often lack the extensive crisis intervention training and experience that mental health professionals have. This is so great and it's so important and I just wanted to bring it to everyone's attention because we need and those of us suffering from mental health deserve more of this. So let's pray for it. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to share a little bit about St. Teresa of Calcutta. Born in 1910 into a Kosovar Albanian family, the future Mother Teresa was baptized into the faith on the day after her birth and left home at the age of just 18 to join the Sisters of Loreto in Ireland with the goal of becoming a missionary. In 1929, she began to teach at a school near her convent in uh, Drakiling, India. When she made her vows, she took on the name of Teresa in honor of St. Therese of Lisieux. She took her final vows in 1937, however. Uh, on September 10th, 1946, she experienced a very different call while riding on a train for her annual retreat that would send her life in a radically different direction. Uh, she said, quote, I was to leave the convent and help the poor while living among them. It was an order. To fail would have been to break the faith. With that, she embarked on her mission to become the woman we all know and love today and eventually was canonized on September 4th, 2016 by Pope Francis. Uh, it's the insights contained in her letters uh, that were realized back in late 2003, however, that have drawn me closer to her than I ever would have imagined before. And when it comes to looking for a saint we can turn to in times where we're unable to feel anything, there may be none more profound. In fact, in 1957, she wrote the following words to her spiritual director. In the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convincing emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. You know, when we dismiss our saints so easily, remembering them only as the perfect snippet of a holy life well-lived, we tend to miss out on the profound insights, inspiration, and help that they can give us. Uh, in his review of the book containing her letters for Catholic News Agency, Brother Bennett S. Exton wrote this, A few years after founding the order, she no longer had these experiences. They were replaced with darkness and a feeling of aloneness. Uh, uh, no longer had the experiences he was speaking about having really great feelings of doing good work. They were replaced with darkness and a feeling of aloneness. She desired to be one with Jesus, but she could not feel anything of his presence. 
This went on up until the day of her death. You know, even so, she pushed forward. She continued to live this incredible and inspiring life, all while having this spiritual anhedonia that so many of us have walked through in our own lives. If you've ever felt like me, you know, sitting on the couch, uh, feeling absolutely nothing, wondering if you'll ever experience the joys and pleasures of life again, please, please remember there is hope, there is healing, there is a community out there ready and willing to walk with you through this dark night. And you may not have realized it until now, but St. Teresa of Calcutta is there for you too. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. St. Teresa, you promised to continuously bring the light of love to those on earth. Pray for us that we also may long to satiate the burning thirst of Jesus by loving him ardently, sharing in his sufferings joyfully, and serving him wholeheartedly in our brothers and sisters, especially those most unloved and unwanted. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Timothy gets us started. My sister has been discerning consecrated virginity for a while now and just received a no from her diocese upon asking if she could take vows. The reason given was her bipolar disorder. She was told that it would be grounds for having an annulment if she were married and divorced and uh, is the reason why she can't make vows. She had previously been denied entry into religious orders for the same reason. She is now feeling like she has no place to turn that effectively uh, tells her she can't commit to any of the vocations because of her mental illness. Do you know if this is in line with the church's teaching on annulment and the consecrated life? It seems bizarre to me that she can't even be a consecrated single person with a mental illness. Thanks for sending this in, Timothy. And please be assured of our prayers for your sister as she continues to discern the path God has in store for her. In fact, let's all pray for her right now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Okay, let's deal with your question right off the bat. Is it true that bipolar disorder is grounds for an annulment according to the church's teaching? As always, I, I like to remind everyone that I'm not an expert on church teaching, but let me explore this a bit in terms of what I do know. In and of itself, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder would not be a reason for an annulment as far as I can tell. And a person with this diagnosis would most definitely be able to make the vows for a valid marriage and thus by extension a valid vow to consecrated life. That being said, I can envision a situation where someone is in a manic state due to their bipolar disorder and their thought process is impaired to the point of not being able to make those vows with the full consent of their will. That could definitely happen. However, simply having a diagnosis does not mean that one is always in such a state. Far from it, actually. Some individuals with bipolar disorder, even when untreated, can go years in between such episodes. And that's not even considering the fact that most individuals compliant with treatment for bipolar disorder do quite well. And most of us probably know or have known people who have bipolar disorder and we never realized it. So 
If this is what the diocese means to say by their statement, I would only say that their understanding of this mental health condition is seriously lacking and needs to be corrected. The idea that individuals with a mental health diagnosis or those who have sought treatment for mental health issues should be kept out of religious life is something we have to push back against. Of course, when we're still going through intense symptoms and still trying to find our way through treatment, we may need to put the discernment process on pause while we get help, but just the presence or of treatment or a diagnosis should not keep us away from these things. We'll keep praying for your sister. Rebecca is up next. Have you talked about burnout from work and life? You know, Rebecca, I haven't until now. Thanks to you. Let's join in prayer for everyone feeling burned out and all of us who have a hard time recognizing when we're burned out and even when we do having a hard time knowing what to do about it. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Burnout is serious and something we always have to be on guard for. I tell people, and myself as well, all the time, that we can't keep pouring ourselves out for others if we don't take time to fill up our cups every once in a while. However, it can be hard for us to recognize when we're feeling burned out. So let's talk about some tips to recognize it and then to do something about it with a little help from psychology today. Burnout is a state of chronic stress that leads to physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and detachment, feelings of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. All right, let's go through some signs of physical and emotional exhaustion to help you see if you might be burned out. Chronic fatigue is the first one. In the early stages, you may feel a lack of energy and feel tired most days. In the latter stages, you feel physically and emotionally exhausted, drained, depleted, and you may feel a sense of dread about what lies ahead any given day. Insomnia. In the early stages, you may have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep one or two nights a week. In the latter stages, insomnia may turn into a persistent nightly ordeal. As exhausted as you are, you can't sleep. Next is forgetfulness or impaired concentration and attention. So this means lack of focus and mild forgetfulness in the early stages. Later, the problems may get to the point where you can't get your work done and everything begins to pile up. Next are physical symptoms like chest pain, heart palpitation, shortness of breath, gastrointestinal pain, dizziness, fainting, and or headaches, all of which should be medically assessed. Increased illness is next because your body is depleted, your immune system becomes weakened, making you more vulnerable to infections, cold, flu, and other problems. Loss of appetite. In early stages of burnout, you may not feel hungry and may skip a few meals. In latter stages, you may lose your appetite altogether and begin to lose a significant amount of weight. Anxiety is next. Early on, you might experience mild symptoms of tension, worry, edginess. As you move closer to burnout, the anxiety may become so serious that it interferes with your ability to work productively and may cause problems in your personal life. Depression, of course, is next. In the early stages, you may feel mildly sad and occasionally hopeless, and you might experience feelings of guilt and worthlessness as a result. At its worst, you might feel trapped and severely depressed and think the world would be a better a place that was better off without you. If your depression gets to this point, you need to seek professional help immediately. Anger is the last way to recognize that we're burned out. At first, you know, you might feel tension and irritability, but in the latter stages, this might turn into anger outbursts, serious arguments at home and in the workplace. And again, if anger gets to the point where it turns to thoughts or acts of violence toward family and coworkers, again, please seek immediate attention. 
So we might also experience things like a loss of enjoyment, pessimism, isolation, detachment, feelings of apathy, increased irritability, and poor performance. And I should also say here that sometimes we aren't the best judge of where we're at with all these experiences I just mentioned above. And that's why it's so important to trust those around us when they come to us and bring these things to our attention. Instead of getting angry or defensive, trust that your loved ones might just be right. So what do we do about this? Here's a little more from Psychology Today. Take an inventory. Make a list of all the situations that cause you to feel stressed, anxious, worried, frustrated, and helpless. Don't rush through it. It's not a race. It's a process. In fact, you should consider it a work in progress, adding to the things as they enter your mind. Next to each item on the inventory, write down at least one way to modify the situation to reduce its stress and then begin implementing them in your routine. Don't get frustrated if you don't see immediate changes. Burnout didn't happen overnight, so it's unrealistic to expect it to go away overnight. But consistent implementation of positive changes in your routine is the best way to see improvement. Here's a hard one. Just say no. While you're recovering from burnout, avoid taking on any new commitments and any new responsibilities. Delegate as many things as possible even if the person you're delegating them to might not do them as quickly or as well as you would. Take breaks between big projects. Burnout puts your mind and body in a weakened state. So avoid jumping from one stressful, time-consuming project to the next and give your mind and body a chance to recover. Control your devices. I hate to tell you, but you got to turn them off and take them away if you want to help yourself get unburned out. Socialize outside of your professional group. This can provide fresh perspectives, stimulate new ideas, and help you discover previously undiscovered resources. Resist the urge to take work home. That might be a little difficult during the pandemic, but as a general rule, you got to turn it off when you get home. Reinforce effort, not outcome. Not even the best players hit home runs every time they get up to bat. So remember to reinforce yourself for trying rather than only for the end results. All right, Anonymous wraps us up. I'm looking for resources for myself in coping with my adult daughter's 20, uh, she's 28 years old, recent suicide attempt. I'm afraid to talk to her because she and her older sister tend to blame me for every misfortune in their lives. And maybe I am to blame, but how do I help to heal these relationships? Let's take a moment to pray for Anonymous, her daughter, everyone struggling to see hope in their lives and everyone who loves them. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First of all, I just want to say what a blessing it is that you're looking for ways to help your daughter as she walks through this dark valley. It takes a lot of strength to want to face this scary situation head on, and she's blessed to have you in her life. Second, I would suggest two things right off the bat. The first being to get yourself connected to an individual therapist that can help you as you work through these difficult questions that parents often wrestle with. Am I to blame for all of this? What could I have done differently? How do I see myself in light of all that has happened? Next, uh, it would be to reach out to your local NAMI group, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, because they will be such a tremendous help to guide you and help you to know what to do with great advice from families who live near you and who have walked through similar experiences. I want you to know that you're not alone. There are so many of us out here who are afraid and at the same time desperate to address this issue with someone that we love. We're scared that bringing up the topic will push them away, but even more scared that ignoring the situation will only make things worse. 
I think it's important to refrain from assuming that we know how someone is feeling or that we know what might be best to help them. Sometimes we can think that uh, they need to talk, but they actually need some time alone or vice versa. We have to let our loved ones know that we want to help them, but we want to help them in the way they want help. So we have to start by asking them what they feel like they need. It's also important to show our loved ones that um, we're not scared by the gravity of the situation. We aren't afraid to have those hard conversations and sit with them even in those darkest moments. We can't be afraid to ask the question, but how do we ask the question? If we have a loved one who seems depressed to the point where we are worried about their safety, what do we say? The best advice I can give is to be direct. If you're concerned for the safety of someone you love, ask the questions in the least ambiguous terms you can think of. Something as direct as, have you been thinking about wanting to kill yourself? While seemingly abrasive and intense, uh, this might actually be the best way to ask the question precisely because it gets right to the point. Asking questions like, are you feeling safe or have you been thinking about hurting yourself lately? Uh, See, those skirt around the issue and may lead to your loved one feeling like you're too afraid to be with them in their darkest hour. It's important to remember that these are just jumping off points for these conversations that get deeper at the truths about how we're doing, about depression and suicide in our lives. And remember the importance of openness, honesty, and showing that you'll be there to support and love no matter what comes up. And hopefully the relationship will slowly begin to be what uh, what you hope it to be once again. We'll be praying for you and your daughter. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things we've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.